Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. My title today is uh, Sin as Disease. And in the Western Church, we're used to hearing primarily about sin and salvation in regard to the law. But in the Bible, though there is a connection between sin and law, the primary focus is on sin as a deception, a lie, sin as a disease, sin as captivity to Satan. And in all of these, death plays a key role. That is, there's a, a lie, a misorientation in regard to death. And the centrality of death found in the fall, you know, Satan says you won't die, emphasized there in the lie of the serpent. It's described in the book of Isaiah as the covenant with death. It's called the last enemy, the final enemy by Paul. It's described as enslaving to fear in Hebrews and Romans under the control of Satan. It's depicted as the orientation to sin by Paul. In the Eastern Church, it's described as a whore. And so, in turn, salvation from death, you know, the focus is on resurrection. And so let's look at a few passages, beginning in Genesis, talking about the the biblical conception of sin, and the idea that the sinful subject is built on a very specific deception. Beginning in Genesis, chapter 3, verse 1 to 5. And the serpent, it says, was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Kind of a questioning uh, the idea. And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden... God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Notice the woman actually changes what God said. He never said anything about touching it. And the serpent said to the woman, that's a lie. He says, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And this story, this picture of sin as connected to a lie, this will be repeated throughout Scripture. That is, when they're going to talk about the deception of sin, this is what they're talking about. And so, for example, in Jeremiah 18, verse 13 to 16, I'm reading from the Message Bible. Ask around, survey the godless nations. Has anyone heard the likes of this? Virgin Israel has become a slut. Does snow disappear from the Lebanon peaks? Do alpine streams run dry? But my people have left me to worship the big lie. Their land is going to end up a mess. 
a fool's memorial to spit upon. In Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16 to 22, I'm also continuing to read from the Message Bible. It says, then you'll see that your precious life insurance policy wasn't worth the paper it was written on. In most translations, this reads, your covenant with death. That is, you've made a deal with death. Your careful precautions against death were a pack of illusions and lies. When the disaster happens, you'll be crushed by it. It is described as a poisonous lie in the Psalms. The throat is pictured as a sarcophagus because of this lie. It's called a bloody path to violence. And Paul then, he sums up all of this in the book of Romans. In chapter 3, he says, verse 9 to 18, What then, are we better than they? He says, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And then he quotes a series of psalms. Their throat is an open grave with their tongues. They keep deceiving. What's the problem? They bought into a lie, the big lie. The poison of asps is under their lips. This lie is deadly like a poisonous snake. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. From out of this bitter lie comes bitter speech. And the result, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There's the problem. People have believed the big lie. People have been deceived. And this produces violence and deadliness. And then the solution. Paul talks about, you know, being baptized into the death of Christ directly confronts the sin condition because sin is entangled with this big lie, with the primordial deception regarding death, the Satan's lie, you won't die, which amounts to an active taking up of death. That is, they believe the lie and they die. So Romans 6, 3 to 5, you know, describes baptism again from the Message Bible. That's what baptism into the life of Jesus means. When we are lowered into the water, it is like the burial of Jesus. When we are raised up out of the water, it is like the resurrection of Jesus. Each of us is raised into a light-filled world by our Father so that we can see where we're going in our new grace sovereign country and so orientation to death as a lifestyle it speaks not only there's an outward violence but also a kind of inward destructiveness you know Paul talks about this incapacity of doing what he doesn't want to do 
That is, people are dying. It's not that they're just dying at the end of the life, that their life is a kind of deadly thing. They're taking up death in life. And the solution in baptism is life in the midst of death. Yet as in Christ, we embrace death and life together. And this way of talking opens up a new vocabulary that I think passes beyond our usual talk about guilt and payment. It pictures a more holistic focus. You know, the Bible talks about shame, this kind of all-inclusive condition. It talks about sin as a disease, as a contamination, as alienation. And to be cured, you know, that's the problem. This is connected to the healing ministry of Jesus. We're cured through fearlessness. The disease is you're fearful, you're controlled, you're a slave to fear. We're cured through wholeness. Our problem is we're split, we're divided, and we're made whole. We're cured through cleanness because we're in some way polluted. We're cured through participation in God, in who God is, because we're alienated from God. And so as described in Genesis and captured in the notion of a kind of sinful desire, there is a lure which draws people out of life. You know, this is really Adam and Eve are drawn out of the garden and drawn out of life. There is a pursuit of a kind of unreachable thing. Oh, you'll be like gods. You'll know good and evil. And the excess hovers around death. You know, that seems to be the beyond. You know, maybe beyond the garden, beyond life. And so literally something is traded for nothing. You know, what did they get out of the deal and what do we get out of the deal? Well, they traded something, life, for death. It's not for any existing thing. It's to be God. It's for a non-existing thing. That which does not exist. You trade life for nothingness, for death, for the grave. And I think that's why it's called the covenant with death in the Old Testament. The serpent calls it being like God in that it seems to open up the realm of experience to the transcendent. What is beyond life, though, is nothing at all. And so it can be understood how God's prediction, you know, God says the day that you eat of it, you will die. Did Adam drop dead? Well, he didn't, did he? But did he die? Well, he died spiritually. He died in the sense that suddenly he's alienated from God. He's alienated you know, from his wife. He's alienated from himself. He experiences shame. It's a kind of living death. And this is the, the idea of shame. David pictures, Lord, save me from the shame of death. Let me not be put to shame, he says in Psalms 31. Shame rather than guilt, I think. It describes a kind of disease in that it contains within that this entanglement with death, alienation, and corruption. And it's not that in the Western church we're completely without this idea of sickness. Actually, I, I noted there's an article by Billy Graham. I didn't know Billy Graham. He's long passed away, but they're still publishing his work. And Billy Graham demonstrates. He has a profound insight into sin as a sickness. This is from Billy Graham. He says, sin is a spiritual virus that invades our whole being. 
It makes us morally and spiritually weak. It's a deadly disease that infects every part of us, our body, our mind, our emotions, our relationships, our motives, absolutely everything. We don't have the strength on our own to overcome its power. He points in a kind of broad way to Christ, but he never says what the nature of the disease, how is it that it's generated? And so when he turns and talks about Jesus, he doesn't say how or why sin acts as a deadly disease and how Christ confronts it. And so the prognosis is on the order of saying, well, you're really sick, but you leave out the name of the disease. What are you sick with? I think the Bible gives us a very specific diagnosis. And so when Graham points to Christ as cure, it's unclear why or how Christ addresses the illness. This is Billy Graham's description. He says, sin is the clogger, and the blood of Christ is the cleanser. And so he pictures the problem like you've got a clog in the drain, and you pour liquid Drano down it. He references 1 John, which does indeed talk about blood cleansing from sin but in 1 John 1 7 it says that we have fellowship with him in other words it's explaining how we're saved it's explaining what the problem is we pass into truth it says out of a deception we believed a lie the, the notion that we can practice see this is why Billy Graham doesn't reference it because it actually sounds like a refutation of Calvinism that somebody thinks that they can follow Jesus and not practice what Jesus practiced, John says they're a liar. The truth is not in them. In other words, Billy Graham makes the mistake that is the Augustinian mistake, that is the Western mistake, which misses that sin is an orientation to death. This is, comes out of Augustine's, you know, if you look at Romans chapter 5, Verse 12, he is reading this in the Latin Vulgate, and it says that in whom all sinned, in verse 5.12. And then Augustine from verse 5.12 says, Nothing remains but to conclude that in the first man all are understood to have sinned. So from the Latin Vulgate, this mistranslation, we get the Calvinist Augustinian notion of original sin. What's the human problem? We all sinned in Adam. That's not what Paul's saying. In the Latin it says, in him, in Adam. Where the Greek has, because of Adam. And Augustine's reading is that death spread to all because all sinned in him. That is, the little baby from conception is a sinner because Adam was a sinner. That's not what Paul's saying. In other words, death spread to all humanity because all, in Augustine's picture, were somehow present in Adam's act of disobedience. Paul is certainly explaining sin, but not as a mystery. This bad reading, rooted in a, a Latin translation, Augustine could not read Greek. He could only read Latin. It has the notion that humans are culpable or guilty with Adam. All humanity sinned in him. And this mistranslation and misinterpretation, it makes nonsense 
of Paul's explanation of the propagation of sin through death. As a result, in the history of the Western Church, sin is a mystery for Calvinists, for Augustinianism. For Paul, though, it is the reign of death which accounts for the spread of sin. You know, this is there. Look at chapter 5 in verse 12. That death spread to all men, and therefore all sin. Verse 14, death reigned. Verse 15, the many died. Death reigned, verse 17, through the one. What do we inherit from Adam? Well, it seems like people die. In verse 21, as sin reigned in death. Sin reigned in death and not the other way around. And this explains why the death of Christ addresses the problem of sin. Because death is our problem. There's an orientation. Christ exposes the big lie of sin. He exposes the lie surrounding death as an empty sham. You know, a kind of promise of being like God. And the early church before Augustine had none of this problem. You know, it was not focused on some mysterious notion of sin, but had a very concrete idea from Romans chapter 5. This is Irenaeus, but it's, I think, many in the early church, they call it recapitulation. And all he's doing is describing Romans chapter 5, in which the first Adam caused the problem, and the second Adam gives us the solution. And so, what did the first Adam do? Well, death reigned in the first Adam. But in the second Adam, Paul says, life and grace reign. So, first Adam, problem of death. With death comes sin. Second Adam, life reigns. Problem of sin resolved. Another picture is called Christus Victor, Christ Victorious. I'm talking about the early church up to 300 A.D. And the picture, of course, is there in many places in the New Testament that Christ came to defeat sin, death, and the devil. It's a very similar theory is ransom theory. Christ came to rescue us from enslavement. And in all of these, this, the idea is that there is subjection to sin as a corruption, a disease due to the orientation to death. And there is the picture then of being cured of a disease, freed from the devil, set free from slavery, overcoming death. This is why we call it resurrection life. And the idea that things are made new, there's new creation. Meanwhile, in the Western church, there is a focus on legal guilt, punishment, and payment. You know, it makes kind of a neat package. What's the problem? Well, you broke the law. What's the answer? Well, you need to pay the penalty or you need to pay the punishment. But what gets left out of this narrow scheme is the picture of the big lie, the reality of death, and the orientation then of sin. And so also with this, the disease model of sin and death, that death is a corruption that infects all of life, that we may fail to have full appreciation if we for the healing power of Jesus if we don't understand what we're healed from. Now you can go through the history of the church and with each innovation in the atonement, 
theory, there seems to be an accompanying sociological shift. Constantine ascends the throne and becomes a Christian. And Anselm then works out in a kind of Augustinian notion, oh, that it's God's honor that is offended. And this fit in a feudal society in which people are very much concerned with honor and offense. And so too in the Reformation with Luther and Calvin, there's this focus on the juridical or the law because they felt the Catholics had missed this. And Luther is concerned, I'm quoting Luther, how horribly blind and wicked the papists were in teaching that sin, death, and the curse could be conquered by the righteousness of human works, such as fasts, pilgrimages, rosaries, vows, etc., rather than by the righteousness of the divine law. Though Luther recognizes, he said, you know, the law has no power to save, he sees the law of Moses as regulating. You know, Moses gave the law and then Jesus comes and everything that's happening is within a kind of picture of the law given through Moses. Luther says, a magistrate regards someone as a criminal and punishes him if he commit, catches him among sinners and thieves. Christ was not only found among sinners, but due to the will of the Father, he assumed the flesh and blood of those who were sinners, and when the law found him among thieves, it condemned and executed him as a thief. And then he gives a very wooden interpretation of this. He says, Jesus is the greatest robber of all, the greatest murderer, the greatest adulterer, the greatest thief. I'm quoting Luther the greatest desecrator of temples, and he was a blasphemer. The world has seen none greater than this. He's saying that Christ became these things. Now Luther even draws back. He's going to condemn John Calvin because Calvin is going to take this even further with his doctrine of penal substitution that Luther says, oh, you're splitting God in half that one half of God is against the other half of God. And actually, even Calvinists have drawn back from this because some describe the significance of Jesus' death as if God hates Jesus. This is a quote. I'm not naming the people. In that death, the wrath of God was poured out on Christ and the darkness exploded, in that instant, God cursed Jesus, putting him in a position of absolute perfect hatred. God hated him and desired to make him nothing. There's another Calvinist. God chose to violate his son in our place. The son stared into the mocking eyes of God. He heard the laughter of the father's derision and felt him depart in disgust. The picture is God turns his back, a reference to Psalms 22. And in a, I'm still quoting, in a mysterious instant, the father who loved the son from all eternity turned from him in hatred. The son became odious to the father. Now even Calvinists have looked at that and said, wait a minute, that can't be right. Is God hate God, even for an instant? Tim Keller, who is a well-known Calvinist preacher, 
He says, if you see Jesus losing the infinite love of the Father out of his infinite love for you, it will melt your hardness. I put that on Facebook and then he took it down when people reacted. Wait a minute. God doesn't lose love for himself or for his son. And so even devout believers in Calvin, in penal substitution, realize there's an, a logic here in the doctrine that amounts to a different version of the gospel, a perversion of the gospel. I'm quoting Calvinists about Calvinism. From the academy to the pulpit to the pew, for those who affirm that the Son made atonement by being hated by the Father, albeit temporarily, Christianity has a new message. The simple logic of which goes like this. The Son became sin. The Father cannot look upon sin without hatred. The Son willingly took our place of condemnation. And for an instant, the Son bore the fury of God. And they raise the question, it's two authors, they say, is this the new logical deposit of an all new dogmatic inheritance for American evangelicals? This is our discussion, you know, what is an evangelical? I think this is it. And they answer their question that some seem poised to accept this new gospel. They say, yes, this is the gospel of evangelicalism. My conclusion, we need to recognize Augustine's error, which gives us original sin. It leads to Anselm and Calvin's law-based notion of redemption. They both recognized that sin is in regard to the law, but they make the law explanation a full explanation of sin. They leave out most of what I've described, and they reduce the work of Christ to satisfying a law. Salvation is reduced to a payment of a debt, a payment for penalty, you know, rather than deliverance from evil, that, which is the biblical picture, we get a whole focus on payment for a penalty. You know, in the Bible, there is this picture of a misorientation to the law. Why? Because there is the big lie, the very lie that Anselm and Calvin promote. That is, the lie is that the law is the arbiter of life, that there is life in the law. That's the big lie. This is what Paul is saying. The Jews think that they have life in the law. There is no life in the law. There's only life in Christ. And Paul pits those two things against one another. And so this gets at the root of sin, but I think it also gets at the root of evil because the outworking of this problem is called the law of sin and death. And this is defeated in Christ's suspension of the law. He does indeed suspend the punishment of the law. But this law and punishment are not from God, but it is at the root of human evil. It's in the big lie. It's in the destructive power of sin. The sinner has joined himself to death, and he imagines that this is a means to life. Paul identifies the law of sin and death. But in Christ, the subject has been joined to God. Romans 8, again, describing being in Christ. This is the solution. Living in the power of the Spirit, belonging to Christ through the Spirit, living now and in the future in the resurrection power of the Spirit, being adopted as a child of God, 
being joined to the love of God. And so where the lie of sin is the active taking up of death, being joined to God and entering into communion with God through the Spirit is the reception of truth and life. The truth is not a legal abstraction, but it's a counter to the lie. It's a life-giving truth which specifically counters the death-dealing lie. And the lie takes up suffering and death, alienation. But Paul dismisses the power of death in light of the power of God's love shown forth in the resurrection of Christ. What will separate us from the love of God? Will tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril sore? What can separate you from the love of God is one thing, the big lie. We've already solved that problem, and once we're in Christ, we have the truth. Where death is the orienting factor in sin, Paul sets out that which trumps death, the love of God in Christ by the Spirit through resurrection faith. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.